Have you ever talked a big game about something only then to have to kind of prove your mettle on it? You can think of little kids that are scared of the dark. They say, I don't need this nightlight anymore. I'm not afraid. Parents say, are you sure? You can still have it. And they say, nope, nothing to be afraid of. I've got this. But then night comes. You go to bed. There you are in the dark, afraid. What are you going to do? You're going to say you were wrong and ask for the nightlight back? You're going to suffer through the terrors of darkness to prove your point? Or are you going to sneak out and try and find another light to only be caught in the morning? So I guess probably what I would have done. Even as adults, we're not different, that different from that little kid. We think of this all the time, even in the fake it till you make it mentality. We can fake it until someone calls us out. <laughs> or even as Christians, how often do we say that God is good toward us? That he will take care of us, that he will provide for us, only to doubt it when the rubber meets the road. When things get difficult and become uncertain. It's easy for us to, to say and to believe in our minds these theological truths. But it's another thing to live in light of them. To make decisions based upon them. Especially when they'll not only affect us, but they'll affect our families. They'll affect our loved ones. And I think all of us, to some extent fail to truly believe that God will protect us. That he will be good to us. We think we need to help him along. That we need a backup plan and a little more help than that. Something that's a little bit more visible, a little more concrete. Ezra has been talking a big game about God to Artaxerxes, the king in Persia. So let's see how he responds when he faces a, a dangerous and uncertain situation. Hear God's word from Ezra as we look at chapter 8, verses 21 to 36. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahaba, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. And the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. Then I set apart twelve of the leading priests along with Sherebiah, Hashabiah, and ten of their kinsmen with them. And I weighed out to them the silver and the gold and the vessels, the offering for the house of our God that the king and his counselors and his lords and all Israel there present had offered. I weighed out into their hands 650 talents of silver and silver vessels worth 200 talents and 100 talents of gold, 20 bowls of gold worth 1,000 derricks and two vessels of fine bright bronze as precious as gold. And I said to them, You are holy to the Lord. And the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them until you weigh them before the chief priests and the Levites and the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel at Jerusalem, within the chambers of the house of the Lord. 
So the priests and the Levites took over the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem to the house of our God. Then we departed from the river Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. We came to Jerusalem, and there we remained three days. On the fourth day, within the house of our God, the silver and the gold and the vessels were weighed into the hands of Merimoth the priest, son of Uriah, and with him Eleazar the son of Phinehas, and with him were the Levites, Jozebad the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah the son of Benui. The whole was counted and weighed, and the weight of everything was recorded. At that time, those who had come from captivity, the returned exiles, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and as a sin offering, twelve male goats. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. They also delivered the king's commissions to the king's satraps and to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they aided the people in the house of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we need you. We need you to open our minds and hearts that we can understand your word. We ask that your spirit would illumine it to us that we might know you. That we might love you more deeply. That we might see your good hand upon your people. God, help us this morning. Encourage us where we need encouraged. Convict us where we need convicted. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So welcome. If you're just joining us, we're going through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We're continuing on through the end of the year on that. And we kind of started this new section last week where 1 to 5 kind of dealt with the rebuilding of the temple. And now 6 through the end of Ezra deal with Ezra coming back with a second wave. And he's bringing back the law of God. And these two chapters, what we covered last week, chapter 7 and chapter 8, really go together. There are these common themes that run through it, and it's showing us the hand of God for the good of his people. It's kind of the emphasis through these two chapters of what's happening. You see it three times in chapter 7 and three times in chapter 8. As, God, as Ezra is leading a group of about 5,000 people back out of exile from Babylon to Jerusalem. And he's bringing the law of God. But he's also bringing back this silver and gold that Artaxerxes and others have offered to God. And that's a good bit of it. I read those numbers and it's confusing a little bit. But if I did the math correctly, which I'm not guaranteeing, they're bringing over 60,000 pounds of silver and over 7,500 pounds of gold. I know Phil wouldn't want to help on that moving day. You can understand why Ezra might be a little bit nervous about this trip. They're carrying that much wealth as they're walking this distance. They probably have carts they're carrying it on, but they're walking this distance of about 900 miles, and they're bringing their kids with them. It's a four-month trip if things go well. If you've packed for a week-long trip in a car with little kids, you know how that can go. So think of 5,000 people, children, women, goods, and then all of this added wealth. It's a grueling journey regardless, let alone carrying the money. 
It's not like you jump on the highway and you go and there are emergency services. There's none of that. It's more like the Wild West. But there are robbers out there. There are bands of thieves. It's a dangerous journey. And this passage could just as easily not be here in Ezra. It could have just listed the names and then fast-forwarded to them being in Jerusalem, like it did in chapter 2. just skips over the whole thing when the first wave returned. So why is it here? That's probably the biggest question I've been dealing with this last week. Why is this passage here? And I think it goes back to what Ezra set out to do. We read last week that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach it in Israel. Sounds a little like James. To study it and to do it and then to teach it. And I think that's what we're looking at in this passage, that it's an illustration of Ezra beginning to do just that with the people. Because teaching isn't just telling. It's not just saying the right things. We actually teach more by what we do and how we go about it in leading people. And so this is almost like a case study for what it looks like. How does one whose heart is set on knowing the law of God and on doing it and on teaching it, how does he act in a difficult and dangerous situation where there's fear and uncertainty How do we live this life as followers of God? So let's see what Ezra has to teach us. There are going to be three three things. First is you're going to seek, seek God, then set apart what belongs to God, and then sacrifice. So there's your alliteration if you want to follow those through. Seek, set apart, and sacrifice. So we'll begin in verses 21 to 23. He proclaims a fast. All the people are gathered there together, and he proclaims this fast that the people might humble themselves before God. And then he says, why? To seek from him a safe journey. In these three verses here, he mentions seeking God or seeking from God three times. If you think I can't read, it's the word implore in verse 23 there. It's actually the same Hebrew word for seek. That's what these verses are about. Humbling ourselves to seek God. It's kind of funny when why Ezra says he has to rely on God alone for safety. Look at verse 22. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Ezra's been bragging to the king on his God, faithfully representing him, saying how powerful his God is and how good he is to his people. So what would the king think now if he went and asked for soldiers? Oh, so your God will protect you. But in case he doesn't, you need me to. Okay, I see how it is. There would have been nothing wrong with Nehemiah or Ezra having an armed escort. We'll see in a couple weeks that Nehemiah actually did that. He has one. And God usually uses ordinary means to bring about his will. That's why we call them ordinary. But Ezra declines this escort. Not because it would change the fact that God is on his side, 
but because of what it would have communicated to the king. It would have undermined kind of what he told him. For Ezra, it could very, very easily mean God is for our good and he will use your men to protect us. Which is a completely appropriate way of looking at life, right? If we know that God is sovereign over all things, if we see how God stirs in the hearts of foreign kings, then he can use foreign soldiers to protect us and accomplish his will. That's an appropriate way to look at it. But for the king, it would have meant, I say God will protect me, but really I need you to. So Ezra actually goes ahead and practices what he preached. He seeks the Lord. So what does that look like? All the people together, he gathers them in chapter, or in verse 15. All the people are together, and he proclaims a fast. They're together fasting and praying. So a fast in the Bible is when you don't eat so that you can pursue the Lord. So you can humble yourself before God, focus your thoughts particularly on him. It's a way of saying, I need you more than I need this food. It's denying yourself for a spiritual purpose. It's one of the focused ways that we seek God. You see this in Ezra. You see it in Second Chronicles. You see it in Acts. You see it here. They fast, but it's not just a diet, right? When we say Breakfast means break the fast to stop it because you haven't eaten since dinner. But it's not just not eating. It's not intermittent fasting either. It's not a diet program. It's pursuing the Lord. So they pray. Prayer always accompanies fasting in Scripture. If not explicit, then implicitly. And we see it here as the undercurrent of what they're asking the Lord for. And more explicitly, as God listens to their entreaty. They've been asking him and he answers so the first thing Ezra does is seek the Lord through fasting and prayer and all the people with him so we want to ask is this your first instinct when you face a difficult situation when you're about to embark on something new and you don't know what's coming when there's uncertainty If I'm honest, it's, not, it's often not mine. If you're like me, you can go about putting all the things in order, making all the preparations, making all the plans, and then briefly ask God to bless me doing what I'm going to do, helping to work it out. Or if I'm more conscientious of what's going on, I'll spend a few minutes in prayer about it and then do what I was going to do anyway. That way I went to the Lord first. Do I actually seek the Lord? Do I take the time, put in the effort, and with a willingness to listen, a willingness to change my plans, a willingness to adjust? And do I recognize that my preparation and plans don't mean anything if the Lord's not in it? Do you? When you're considering schooling for your children, when you lose your job or are looking for another and don't know what to do, when there's a difficult friend or family member, 
that you want to love well, but are driving you nuts. When you're considering how you can faithfully represent Christ at work, when you're facing opposition. When you have medical decisions that you need to make. Do you tack God on to these decisions? Or do you trust that his good hand will be with you if you will seek him? When's the last time you fasted to seek the Lord about something? Maybe you never have. There aren't specific commands to do it, right? So there aren't certain times or days. There isn't a checklist for what it looks like and when it has to happen. But Jesus expects that it will be a normal part of our lives. When he talks about people fasting, he says when you fast, not if you fast. This is expectation for it. Are there situations in your life or in the life of our church, maybe as we're considering five-year planning, seeking where the Lord is leading us, maybe we're delaying that meeting because we should fast beforehand and seek the Lord in it and not come with our own plans and thoughts. there's something in your life going on that you particularly need to seek the Lord or what about in everyday decisions that we make not just the big stuff but in the smaller stuff too where we wouldn't fast but we need to seek the Lord in prayer especially when we're so busy it's probably when we need it the most and yet fail to do it. In a sermon in 1865, English pastor Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, I like the saying of Martin Luther when he says, I have so much business to do today that I shall not be able to get through it with less than three hours prayer. Now most people would say, I have so much business to do today that I have only three minutes for prayer. I can't afford the time. But Luther thought that the more he had to do the more he must pray, or else he could not get through it. This is a blessed kind of logic. May we understand it. It's so easy to go through our days without ever seeking the Lord. On autopilot. Oh, that we would know God's goodness and trust him. That's what it goes down to, isn't it? Do we believe God is good and for us? We forget that our first instinct would be to go to the God of heaven, the creator of all things, instead of trying to make our own way. Let's be a people who seek the Lord with humility, knowing that his hand is for good on all who seek him. And it doesn't stop with seeking. They don't sit there fast and pray and then are teleported safely to Jerusalem. No, they actually have to make this long journey. 
So he takes 12 priests and 12 Levites, who are the ones who would assist in the temple service, and he sets them apart, saying 12 of each, because I think the colon is a better and, um, or along with, since we know earlier in the chapter, Sherebiah and Hashabiah are Levites, not priests. So he sets apart these 24 men, and he puts them in charge of the loot. And the charge he gives them in verse 28 is this, You are holy to the Lord. And the vessels are holy, and the silver and the gold are a freewill offering to the Lord, the God of your fathers. Guard them and keep them. Now we can say Ezra does this because it's good, smart leadership that he's delegating, giving people responsibility, yada, 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 which is all true stuff, right? But I don't think this is a Lee-like Ezra point. What's emphasized from verse 25 to 34 is not Ezra's leadership style, but taking special care of that which belongs to the Lord, making sure not to lose what belongs to him. If you look through those verses, the root of this word way or weight or weighed is repeated seven times, that every ounce matters. There are these descriptions of the cargo. The priests and vessels are described as holy, holy to the Lord, that they're set apart for Him, for His service. And the rest is a free will offering to the Lord. It belongs to Him. And is set apart that the nations and the people who come to His house might glimpse His glory. Ezra does not concern himself with making sure he's the good leader, but in taking care of what belongs to the Lord. And then what's interesting here is this long and difficult journey, this 900-mile walk in just over four, under four months, carting along 70,000 pounds of silver, or 70,000 pounds of metal, with all the danger and uncertainty and enemies and possible ambushes. It passes in two verses. With this description, the hand of our God was on us and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambushes by the way. And then when they deliver the goods, not an ounce is missing. They sought the Lord and then they went about the hard work. Long, hard work. Four months of it passes like this in the story. But they're working that whole time, wrangling the kids, protecting everything they're bringing with them, but taking special care to steward God's possessions, and his good hand is on them to deliver them. Before Christ, God has always dwelt among his people, but before Christ, it's in the Garden of Eden, then in a tabernacle, then in a temple, then the rebuilt temple. In the temple, there are the vessels, and then there's the treasury. And that's where these things are going. That's where they're handed over. So it's easy to say, this belongs to God and his temple. But in Christ, there's been this shift. As Dan mentioned last week, in a sense, we're all priests. It's not just the names listed here. But we're all priests, in a sense, now. And we're now together, as his bride, the temple where he dwells among us by his spirit. The church 
His body is this special place where the world is to glimpse the glory of God, especially in the way that we show love toward one another and our enemies. So instead of setting apart certain people and certain possessions in the New Testament, the church is emphasized as what specially belongs to him. Peter tells us we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, God's special possession. Why? So that we'll sit there? No, he says that we may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into marvelous light. Where Ezra sets apart what belongs to God and stewards it on this difficult journey. I think we can ask how God can receive what belongs to him, all praise and glory and honor in our lives, in the situations that we face. And how can we pay special attention toward that? Some of you may have heard this story, but after college, I worked at a frozen yogurt shop for a year, and a situation came up where I was really being taken advantage of by my boss that I wasn't paid for work that I had done and hours were cut and things like that as well. And I didn't seek God. And I was more concerned with me getting what I needed and doing what I needed to do to rectify the situation than I was with God's glory or anything like that. I was not making much money and barely getting by at that. So I was going to work this situation out and make it happen, but by God's grace, I uh, called a friend of ours and talked to her, this godly woman who is much wiser than me and who knows both my boss and me. So I was like, she can help me approach this situation in the best way that will give me the results I want. So I called this godly woman who's Lucy's middle name's namesake, and she didn't do what I wanted you might expect. So I explain what's going on, and then I ask her what she thinks I should do. And you know what she had the nerve to say? The first thing was, well, the first thing we want to do is make sure that God is glorified by what you say and do. So naturally, I agreed with her. You know, I know my catechism that much. And I tried to play it off like, oh, of course, that's obviously what I was thinking too when it hadn't crossed my mind. I was so caught up with what I wanted and desired and thought I needed that I hadn't even considered it. God's glory hadn't entered my mind. The fact that I belonged to him didn't matter at all. I was worried about paying my bills and making sure I had what I thought I had coming. Do you do that too? Do you forget that you belong to the Lord? Even as you face difficult situations, He has set you apart. He has called you to holiness. Do you allow yourself to be swept away by the stream of worldly concerns, forgetting that He set us apart as His possession? And that one day, we'll give an account. Forgetting that his hand is actually on us for our good. 
We need to work with His glory and praise and honor in mind. Pursuing holiness. It doesn't mean everything will be easy. God delivers them from their enemy and from ambushes along the way, but it's still an arduous journey. As we seek God and set ourselves apart, pursuing holiness, seeking His glory in what we do, that doesn't mean it will be easy. I didn't get the money I was owed, but I didn't rob God of His glory either. And while things were really, really tight for a few months, God provides. His good hand delivered me. Ezra seeks the Lord, then he sets apart what belongs to him. And God, God's hand delivers them. So then what's the response? Sacrifice. They respond with worship. Look at verse 35. It says, they all gather together and offer burnt offerings to the God of Israel. You see the multiples of 12 there. 77 might be 72, representing all of God's people, just part of Ezra's role of reconstituting them. This is their first time being in Jerusalem. Their first time seeing the temple, seeing the house of God. The God who loves them, who has cared for them, who oversaw them in their exile, who has brought them home. So they worship him by offering burnt offerings These are offerings of thanks. The idea of a burnt offering is that nothing's held back. It's all burned up. You can have it all. They recognize that it was God who has protected them, who has delivered them. They thank Him for it. Isn't that the appropriate response? To praise and thank God for His provision and protection? Do you take the time to do that? To not just pay lip service, but to truly praise and thank God for his goodness in your life? It's so easy to just move on to the next thing. There are a million things lined up. It's so easy to just move on and be consumed by upcoming challenges, by upcoming things without remembering and reflecting on God's goodness in our lives. And these things we've been talking about, they all reinforce one another, don't they? When we remember God's goodness towards us, we're going to give thanks. When we actually think about it, when we give thanks and we know He's done this, then we're more likely to actually seek Him. So we remember his history with us, his faithfulness toward us. And when we actually seek him, we're likely to think, well, what does he think about the way I interact in this situation? What does he think about this decision I'm making? We can pursue holiness in it. It's really this cycle of just living the Christian life, humbly seeking God, setting ourselves apart in pursuit of holiness praising him for his goodness toward us in it and repeat and repeat and repeat 
It's focused on God. <laughs> they didn't only thank God, they also offered a sin offering. They recognized that they fall short still, even as his people, they fall short of what God requires of them. And they know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They know they need God's forgiveness. And they know that this is something that they'll have to do again and again. Because they continue to sin. If you flip back two chapters, there was a sin offering. There's one here again today. But these are but a shadow that point to the reality of Christ, the Lamb of God, the worthy Lamb who was slain to take away the sin of the world. The writer of Hebrews tells us that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins, but Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. That those pointed forward to him that the Son of God Himself would become a man, would live a perfect, sinless life, and yet would sacrifice Himself on behalf of all who trust in Him. If you confess your sin and trust in Christ, your sins will be forgiven. Past, present, and future there is no doubt, there is no sin that is deeper than the blood of Christ. We still confess our sins, right? We do that every week. We just did it an hour and a half ago, it feels like from up here. But, um, but we can confess our sins. We can bring them to God. Not out of fear, but knowing that we'll be forgiven in joyful repentance because the sacrifice has been made. There is no doubt of where we stand with God in Christ. That he loves us as his own son. Do you want to see the hand of the Lord for your good? Look right there. Look to Christ, where he freely offers not deliverance from enemies on the way, from ambushes, but he offers deliverance from our greatest enemies, sin, death, the devil. Seek him, and he promises that you will find him. Know that by the blood of Christ, you have been set apart to live as his fitting followers of Christ and give thanks in all circumstances, as Paul tells the Thessalonians. 